Welcome to the Predictable Designs Podcast, where it's all about creating and selling successful new electronic hardware products. Here's your host, engineer and entrepreneur, John Till. Welcome to the Predictable Designs Podcast, where we discuss all things related to developing, manufacturing, marketing, and selling successful new electronic hardware products. I'm your host, John Teal. Today I'm speaking with Joshua Sue, who is a co-founder of a hardware startup named Introm that is developing a fitness product. In our call today, we discuss a wide variety of topics, including prototyping, product validations, patents, fundraising, marketing, and sales. So uh, welcome to the show, Joshua. Hey, thanks, John. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm uh, great to ha- happy to, to have you on, and uh, I think uh, this will be a good call. We can hit on a, a wide variety of, of topics, uh, unlike some of the other podcasts I've done where it's it, you know an expert in one area, and we just focus on that area for, for you. Since you're a hardware startup founder, we're going to kind of hit on a, a bunch of different topics as we discuss your 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 team and your your product and uh, the progress that you've made so far. Can you go ahead and just uh, tell listeners uh, just a bit about yourself and also your background? Yeah, so um, I'm actually a recent alumni of ASU. I studied biomedical engineering and economics. Uh, specifically, my interests within those domains were healthcare economics as well as industrial organization. And within the biomedical space, um, I was doing a lot of research in my undergrad. Um, it was ranging from um, synthetic biology, uh, computational synthetic biology, to biomechatronics. Um, so there's a, I did research for most of my undergrad career. Um, and then once towards the end of my undergrad career, we, me and my buddies and I, when we were sort of like um, wanting to start our capstone project, we decided to just to kind of start a company out of that as well. So that's just a general background on there. Um, on the sort of uh, extracurricular side, I used to work at a nonprofit a consulting firm that specializes in, in business consulting, management consulting uh, for small businesses around the valley. So I happen to have a lot of the business side of things along with the engineering as well. That's great. That's what we were just talking about before we started <laughs> recording was yeah. that you were, we were commenting on the fact that both of us are interested in both the engineering and the, the business side, which is a, a rare combination, but I am maybe a bit biased because I'm like that, but I think it's a good combination to have. So, uh, Congrats on that. And I also like that your degree is very much in the field of your product. So that's, that's always good instead of you being an English major and now you're wanting to do that. <laughs> yeah, you know, like when, when I first decided those two major tracks, people, I, I, was, I thought I was a little bit crazy because like those, those actually have no overlap whatsoever. So my schedule throughout my uh, in college was extremely all over the place. Uh, but in retrospect, it's actually been extremely helpful understanding the biomedical side, but also the economics of everything as well. So extremely useful in retrospect, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. As most, uh, I, as I will talk about frequently, most founders, if there's only one founder, they they tend to excel in one side or the other. They tend to be really technical engineers or or they tend to be the the business side of things. So a lot of startups need to have at least two founders so that they can have that complement of skills. Um, so that's good that, that you have both of those skills. I, I know that you're not a, a solopreneur. So can you also tell me about your, your co-founders and the team that you have? Yeah. 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 So that's interesting. I just want to mention like, like get interested, like when we were, we were, we were recent undergrads and we were by no means like, like the top of our class. So we were, we were like the most academically like smart, if you were traditionally, right? 
Um, and like on paper, like I would argue that on paper I was I was a little bit more qualified than my co-founder at the time, right? His name his name is Max Fisco, by the way. Okay. Um, however, over the past two years, he has gotten to the point that he has far surpassed where both of I both of I graduate, and he are and he's definitely has surpassed a lot of master students in his in his domain. So just on his own and talking to professors, reading textbooks, literally reading textbooks, and just prototyping our lab that we have here. I mean, he's just getting to the point where like most graduate students and like even some professors can't really answer his questions anymore. Uh, so he's sort of so like it's very interesting seeing that happen. So even though that I may I may have like the biomedical as well as some of the business side, um, it, it's helpful because it still allows me to talk to him. But um, he's gotten to the point where he's getting, he's actually like a true CTO, CSO. So that's why like, he's like a, like a really good compliment. And I would argue that given the nature of a hardware startup, especially if you're like in the health space, like a wearable medical startup, having the ability to understand at least where your CTO is coming from, from like a very fundamental engineering and physics perspective, gives you so much, a much better way to develop a business plan. So that's why I sort of like, that has ex been extremely helpful and an extreme compliment on that. I don't think I would be able to talk to Max if I didn't have that particular background, um, given the nature of the startup. It's been really helpful in our conversation. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I always say you don't need to know how to do everything to get a product to market, but you need to at least have an understanding of it well enough to be able to manage it and to be Correct. able to talk to them and judge the quality of the work that's being done. Otherwise, I, I feel like a lot of people kind of fall down a trap if they just, if they try to outsource the, say the product development, but they give it, they don't want to oversee it. They don't really have any interest in learning what the engineers are working on. And I, I think that's a yeah. fatal. Also, what's interesting is like, is like, I think people, so one of the things we have to develop is basically like how to learn, which is, which is, which is, sounds really weird, but basically it's like, most people don't realize in any kind of like, basically what you just said, like achieving the ability to understand how to manage your product, right? That's, that achievement is is far less work than trying to like tr become a true expert, you know. Because so people don't people when they start digging into it, they they think like, oh, there's so much stuff I don't know. It's a lot of stuff. Like, what is all this, right? Uh, therefore, they decide, oh, well, I should probably outsource this, right? But it but like most of the time, you'll find is that you can definitely learn enough to know what you're looking for, but not necessarily like enough to be an expert in it, but still enough to manage everything else, you know. Absolutely, yeah. You know, that's, that, that, that's a, that, like a fine line that I think is a really good thing to learn how to learn, you know? Yeah, I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I had recently, uh, there was a, a new course in the hardware Academy on how to design a, a PCB that mm. is sort of an example of that where it's intended to be an introductory course. If you want to learn all the details of designing your own PCB and you eventually get to the point of designing a manufacturable PCB, but it's also really intended to be just an introduction for those that don't want to design their own printed circuit board, but you need to understand what, what is a printed circuit board and <laughs> what are the steps your engineers going through? Otherwise you, you're just, it's, you can't manage something if you don't understand it. And you're also opening yourself to being scammed and ripped off. And there's a lot of people Especially like in the invention market, that like to, to prey on people that that don't don't really know enough to be able to judge what's happening. So I'm mm -hmm. always a, a big uh, proponent of learning as much as possible, but 
not necessarily going down the route of trying to learn enough to do everything yourself. There's, there's a big difference in knowing enough, like you said, to be able to manage it versus being able to actually do the work yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, so we've mentioned that it's a a fitness product, uh, that's intended for trainers. Can you, can you tell everyone more about the product? Uh, who's it for, how, how it's used and such? Yeah, so to kind of give you a little background, well, things are changing very rapidly, so I'll kind of give you a, a little review of it before the before the current environment right now. So uh, Max and I's Max and I's background actually, so we're former student athletes at ASU. I was a, a I rode crew for ASU, and Max is a football player. Both of us were uh, weightlifters um, throughout our college career, um, but we were injured in different capacities. Um, due to the incompetence of um, different personal trainers, as well as a, a physical therapist when they were helping, helping us recover. And uh-huh. Max actually had got re-injured because of that, right? So like most people, after an injury, you know, you want to recover as soon as possible and get back to where you were. Um, and like most people, you want to do it in the most affordable and effective way possible. But when we were, and because we were biomedical engineers, we sort of went through the recovery process with a different perspective. Um, almost like a subject matter ex- like perspective, and we discovered that the physical health value chain that leads to leads an individual to, through recovery to peak performance is very subjective, meaning that there is no objective way um, to determine the effectiveness of your rehab, of your training, and the industry, at least specifically in the uh, personal training in industry, is very much there's no quality control or any sort of like uh, standard gold standard because there's, for example, there's over 2000 different certifications, um, trainers, you can, trainers, there's more bad trainers than good trainers overall. So okay. we ultimately decided to try to found the company to try to help build tools and solutions, um, for these trainers and the, and their clients to basically redefine how they go about, um, their business on that. end. So that's essentially the fitness product. Okay. Um, the, the, the product itself is a wearable, uh, it's a wearable system. It's a multi-noted wearable system just imagine it, it's just a motion sensor inside of it nothing nothing special nothing new um that is magnetically attached to your clothing and it basically powers um a, a training life cycle SAS for trainers and their clients so basically uh, um takes in workout programs records full body motion and generates um workout programs for the uh, for the trainers themselves um to be used for the clients and okay. just kind of give you an idea of like what that means is that it Generally speaking, that entire process normally takes about up to five hours. We do that in like 15 minutes. So it saves the trainers and increases their productivity by a large percentage. So it's a device that someone would have on, say, both their arms and, and both legs, and you're, you're monitoring the, the, the movement that, the, that they're making? Is, is that correct? Basically, basically. imagine like, so the, basically the, for everyone out there, if you don't know, the, the sensors in your phone, it's, it's, it's the same sensor that detects whether it's a flipped one way or the other. Mm-hmm. That same sensor we put into basically – uh, a form back to the size of uh, say a quarter or so and that gets basically attached to different parts of your body whether through uh, parts of your clothing um, or for example like a sleeve but basically it gets attached to different parts of your parts of your body and then because it's all attached and attached to each other we can record different data points as your body is in movement and we can show you like exactly how you're moving why you're moving that way and also give you uh, and know how to correct the movement if it's poor Okay. So I assume it's just an accelerometer. Something like that. Yeah. It's like, an, it's a, it's a nine degrees of freedom. So accelerometer, gyroscope, magnometer. Okay. Yeah. It's the, the full inertial, uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. Gotcha. There was one, there was one of our prototypes. We actually had a barometric sensor in there. 
um, for, for altitude, but we decided to co go with something else while we were still doing, doing prototypes. Our current one only is just a nine degrees of freedom. Okay, well, that, that's good. I always encourage to, to simplify, get rid of any features initially that you, like the barometric pressure that I could see that not being uh, absolutely essential considering I assume most people are training probably close to sea level, I, I assume, mm -hmm. or not. Uh, I guess it would be critical. It would be more useful if you were training by running up and down mountains or something like that. Perhaps. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't that. Yeah. The, the cost of implementing that was a little too high because it was just, it would be very specific sports specific cases while we were going for a more generalized um, personal training platform software. So that, that, that wasn't necessarily necessary to, it was overcomplicating it too. Because Absolutely. Like, yeah. And you can always, wow. you can always add that later once you yeah. get more visibility. Exactly. Exactly. It's all about getting something out there and then that just gives you visibility because yeah, you get like a I have to say though, there, it's just, it's hard to know. Oh yeah, no, but the thing is I have to say, so uh, I, I didn't quite mention this, but we started as a, uh, we actually started in this product, we actually started with smart clothing. We actually, that was a big component of our product for like 10 months. So we were actually developing smart clothing before we actually pivoted into the wearable, and we only pivoted into the wearable form factor, like the actual physical wearable, wearable uh -huh. around like six to eight months ago. So it's a very, fairly recent pivot uh, based on, so we had to re, we redesign the entire product because um, and the reason behind that is we actually, um, after a third round of primary market research and customer interviews, um, with the smart clothing, we were showcasing our prototypes back then, we just discovered that it was just, it was just going to be too much of a sell to try to convince individuals to wear the clothing and convince them to wear a different wardrobe product. Um, yeah. to come out of it was, it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was kind of a shock as I mentioned because we wasted a lot of time, but we learned a lot too. So we had, we did the pivot. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can definitely uh, see that, that being a good pivot. It's uh, doing clothing is now you've got sizes and, and, you yeah. know, and, and the style, obviously everyone has different clothes they like to wear in styles. Oh, 100%. Like, I definitely think having all the sizes and colors. I mean, you, you just create sort of a, uh, you know, a stock keeping nightmare having to, to yeah. so many different. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny. I think in Hardware Academy, I think there was someone, um, someone actually asked like a spelling question. I was just thinking about throughout this. But like the industry, it, 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 it's not prototyping. The prototype is already difficult enough. You know, there's no tools out there designed for, for you to prototype with smart clothing. You know, there's like traditional textile manufacturing stuff that like, but the, even then it's not designed for you to like weave and integrate electronics into it. Um, and then that's the, there's the, the, so the prototyping, you have to create custom tools just for that. Right. But then once you create that, then the, the manufacturing domain, the landscape is, is definitely not mature at all for kind of commercialization of, uh, smart clothing. So you have also have a problem there too. That's what we found, um, towards the end of that. It was, yeah, it was, you kind of, yeah, you're mixing textiles, which with electronic manufacturing and those two typically uh don't go together necessarily so you're <laughs> yeah. trying to merge two different industries and yeah i think that yeah. definitely seems like a really smart pivot there to, to get away from that you can always go back to it again later if, if oh we're planning to we, we, yeah. we still think there are a lot of benefits to like the smart clothing um, uh -huh. but it's just that we don't have a we don't have capital to to both design a prototyping um process multiple with different ones for our purposes as well as the resources to literally a brand new manufacturing industry, which is essentially what smart clothing needs. You know, so it's, it was nutty because we were working with fabric, you know, we were trying to figure out if they had it, but it was just so separated from the two. There wasn't, there was barely any, over, any overlap. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
So let's um, maybe uh, jump into to your business model a, a little bit. Is this a, a one-time hardware sell? So you just sell the device one time, it's one-time payment, and that's all the money you collect from the customer? Or is this going to be, is there going to be a software back-end service that you'll charge like a recurring monthly fee? Yeah, so it depends. So with the changing landscape, given like the COVID-19 and the uh, the virus, we we are considering another pivot um, because so we originally started. We actually originally started in the physical therapy space. I don't know, I don't know if I mentioned that, uh, but we pivoted to the performance trainer. We pivoted to the personal trainers in the client space. Uh-huh. Um, and some of the reasons were the reg- the regulatory landscape wasn't um, right for our product at the time. Um, there was going to be a harder sell. There wasn't really there's was a lot of liability issues, et cetera, et cetera. Right? However, given that COVID nineteen. Personally, I'm very concerned about um, the the fact that the physical therapy clinics are closing at a rate um, which is just unheard of, as well as patients are canceling who desperately need it. For example, 65 plus individuals are at a large amount of fall risk. They're like every 11 seconds, an elderly individual falls and goes sent to, gets into the ER, and every 19 minutes they actually die from the fall itself. Right? Oh wow. Yeah, it's, so it's crazy. And that was before the virus, you know. So the, yeah. the fact that, that these things are closing so fast and they are also at risk, right, it is, it is, it is definitely something that I probably personally don't want to sit, kind of sit and watch it happen. Um, so we've been, like, considering a pivot because there's a lot of overlap between our – it, 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 and it's designed that way because we were originally going to go back to the physical therapy space. But there's a lot of overlap between our product that we designed for personal trainers and their clients that with uh, physical therapists and their patients. Right. So the business model is, in the sense, depends on how the, the evolving landscape goes. So the original business model, we were going to charge trainers a subscription. So the hardware comes free. We, we actually originally we had we, we did what a lot of people did, like, oh, we're going to sell the hardware. And, I, I, and because I was doing a lot of economic analysis and you did economics of it, it just didn't make any sense just to sell the hardware. Because if we can redesign the business model in a way we can actually get a, the lifetime value of the customers is a lot more if I charge if I can design the service that enables me to charge a subscription for it. So we switched to subscription for the personal trainer. So essentially what it did was we charged, we basically gave the trainers a monthly fee of $100 and let's start $200. They, they, they pay us $200 a month. They get a wearable system and they basically get what we call 20 assessment credits that they can use to do a full body assessment of their client. The, um, with obviously the analytics and the, uh, monitoring of their client comes free but we found that the actual quantified value proposition which is which is the actual quantification of the value the perceived value that the trainer has is um, in the, those assessments so we sort of tied the assessments the revenue model the pricing model and the business model three separate models into one uh, specifically for the assessments so it'd be i think it was a hundred dollars 250 and 500 increments now that business model has changed if we do do the pivot to the physical therapy it will probably be um, I believe we, we, I believe that when we were, I looked into it, it was based on clinic size. So the amount of patients they actually have, so very similar to the personal training industry, but it'd be on clinic size. So for five patients, I think we were going for $2,500 uh, per month. And for 15 patients, it was, um, $6,000 a month. Sorry. Yeah. $6,000 a month. And for 40 patients, it was, um, $15,000 per month, if I'm correctly, um, for the different services, uh, rendered. Um, for that aspect. So it depends on um, how we're going to go about that. But th- those are the initial, uh, specifically the business models that we're looking at, as well as the pricing and revenue models that we're kind of looking at. 
Yeah, um, I think that's a I think that's a, a smart, really smart decision. One of the the best things you can do to increase the the value of a startup is to add a recurring back end model to the the one time sell of the hardware. And there are a lot of hardware investors like uh, Bolt. I don't know if you know of a, a company named. Yeah, 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 I love Bolt. Bolt yeah, great. they have a great yeah. great blog love and. Yeah, so I know they only pretty much strictly invest in hardware startups that have a software back in a, re- a recurring aspect to it, just because that's the reason investors have gone crazy for for software. I mean, in addition, it's a little easier to develop than hardware, but it's that recurring model that every investor knows just adds all this predictability to the to the to the business and the income coming in. So I think that. That makes not only your startup more uh, something that professional investors will want to invest in, but it's also going to go a long ways in, in helping your your cash flow because the normal startup, hardware startup, the cash flow is always the, the biggest challenge because you have to pay for inventory typically before you have it, and then you don't get paid until after it's been delivered for a while. So having that recurring income coming in can definitely help to, to smooth out those, those big spikes that you have in, in your cash flow. So I think that's, that's a, a really good strategy. I'm a little confused. So you're pivoting away from trainers and over to physical therapy, but with the coronavirus, it sounds like people aren't going in for physical therapy. So I'm, I'm a little, to me, it seems backwards, like you would be going from physical therapist to, to trainers. What, what, what am I missing? Yeah, so 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 yeah, part of the um, element of that we had before um, that we're trying to apply to, to the physical therapist is there's a telemedical component to our device. Um, um, okay, okay, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. like currently, when you have closed, for example, gyms are closing too. It's, it's such a similar overlap. It's crazy how like similar it is. But when you have the inability of these healthcare professionals to meet with their customers, you have a very you have a disruption in service, right? Um, so for our thing, we basically substitute that service and in certain ways we actually amplify it. So the idea is that our, our delivery of services prevents people, prevents these professionals, these practitioners from losing business and also increase their productivity. And it's, and the reason why we're, the reason why we're considering to pivot back into the coronavirus is because now that now that the status quo has been changed really, really quickly, it might be actually, they may now be able to, our cost, our, basically our, our, Market penetration cost and investment will be significantly lower. So it now has decreased the barrier of entry now. So it potentially could give us a way in, essentially. And that's why we and that was why we pivoted away from it originally. Okay, okay. I think okay, I got you. So are you not concerned that by the time you have the product ready to, to ship, that things are gonna ship things are gonna shift in regards to the virus? Um, I'm just curious if your, your mindset as far as pivoting to something based on something that hopefully is a, is moderately short-term and not a, a long-term impact is? Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know the question you're asking. Um, and the answer, I, I have like answers, but it's not, I haven't thought through it enough to make it concise. So I'll try to, so please feel, feel free to jump in if I'm not being clear. Okay. Um, so, so, so I guess I'll start with my assumptions. I'm assuming that this virus and the current state of things will last anywhere from 12 to 18 months on a like a like a relatively good 
estimate, but potentially longer than 18 months, given the state of things. I've been following. Yeah, I think it's going I I used... to be oscillating up until there's yeah. herd immunity or the vaccine comes out. So Yeah, exactly. Right. And, in 18, and if people don't know about vaccine development. 18 months is still very, very generous. When it yes. Comes to that, you know? And people don't realize that, which is like unfortunate, but people don't realize how long it actually takes to develop a vaccine. And actually, you know, it's not even just safety, it's just effectiveness of the vaccine too. As you know, it's effective. So yeah. I'm like thinking upwards of that realm, like 18 months is like, and I've been also like talking like, because I, I use Twitter a lot, not just for me, just catch up, but I use, I, I use Twitter for information feeds from, for example, like um, I segment my information based on say investors or um, doctors or service provider, whatever it is that I'm looking for. I have lists of people that I know I can trust for information that I curate. So one of the ones is like the investor list, which has been saying like, okay, when are investors going to be warmed up to the market again? And when do they think the market's going to bounce back? But, and it's basically, they're just saying like three to six months, they're just going to pause everything. And then from like now until three to six months and then upwards of 18 months um, or more before um, anything sort of turns back up again. Right. So that's a very long time period. Well, um, all this stuff is happening. So that's why I'm, it, for us, is like, I don't necessarily think that our development of our, of our product would exceed that. Um, part of the reason is because, and this is, sort of gets to my second point, um, because there's so much overlap between the physical therapists, personal trainers, and the, uh, the patients and the clients. There's a lot, a lot of overlap. So the core technology hasn't changed all that much. But it's just the marketing strategy, the reimbursement strategy, the, re, the, regu the regulatory strategy, as well as the um, sort of the clinical path to market, and as well as the marketing claims we can make. So, if you're in any kind of um, medical med tech based device or wearable, there's a so there's a body of regulation that you could do out there. But really, all that regulation at the end of the day, all it does, it just tells you what you can market, like what you can claim uh -huh. and why, right? And there's a certain amount of resources you have to put in, like money, capital, whatever it is, to be, basically be able to make those claims. But all those regulation is telling you is what claims you can make and what regulations and qualification. And, and that's pretty much it, right? So that's basically um, what I'm trying to operate under right now. I'm actually putting together a team. Um, I actually just got off a meeting with them this morning. But if people don't realize, and if anyone here actually is in the metric space, there's a body of uh, regulatory domain and research, not research, regulatory guidance documents that was released in the past like three years or so called software as a medical device. Okay. And it basically in a nutshell um, gives you a different path to market to the medical market um, that doesn't rely on the physical elements of a particular device. So most people are familiar with FDA class one, class two, class three, all that good stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. The thing is about the software as a medical device is essentially as it sounds is that the physical device itself doesn't have to be a medical device. It's just the software. So there's a whole other sort of qualifications and domain of regulatory stuff that you follow. But the idea is that because it's software, it's far e much more simpler to iterate upon than trying to go take an actual physical medical device to the FDA, right? And it's a very new body of research. So the team I'm actually putting together is actually to help me basically research that information and give me a better, more options of what to do if I were to go tackle the physical therapy clinical market. Gotcha. Okay. Have, do you have a good feel for which of these two niches are going to be easier to, to reach? It's, it's, that's one reason to niche down is because it's a market that you yeah. can reach more yeah. easily. So, you have, have you given yeah, that? So, well, if you asked me that like two or three weeks ago, I would have definitely, definitely said the, the personal training industry. Like, absolutely. 
um, because it was just a, there's no regulatory hurdles. It's their trainers have the incentive. The trainers still use pen, paper, and Excel, and it's it very un, undisrupted, un, untapped industry. But given the changing conditions that's moving so fast, I don't know. I don't know. It, it could be the physical therapists, based on how like how I'm like looking at the sort of like the changing telemedical regula- regulatory a landscape that's happening with the virus, um, as well as like the, the fact that the, the, all the different organizations are trying to mitigate it. There might be enough momentum here to decrease the cost of the acquisition of the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know. At this point, I don't know. I am, key, I am actually putting two simultaneous programs in place to see which one turns up in the next few weeks, even the next couple months. Um, the good thing is it doesn't really affect our core product development. Because like I was saying earlier, it's pretty much the same. But it does affect our market penetration strategy when it does come to that. Um, but putting those two programs into place allows me to keep track of both of them. And once and when, whenever our product development is ready to go, at least from the MVP wise, we'll be able to know which which place to tackle first. Gotcha. Um, yeah, in it in regards to reaching these these people, since you probably have more connections in the the fitness industry than you do uh, uh, um, re like a. Uh, uh, physical therapy. Um, so I'm curious, what are your plans? Like, how, how do you, how, how do you plan on reaching out to, to physical therapists? Are there organizations for them or, uh, which I, I suspect there are, but I'm, I'm just curious as far as your marketing message and, and getting users, how those two compare as far as reaching out to them. If you, if you've gotten to that point yet of looking at, yeah. So actually, no, well, so we actually have, we actually, so how do I say this? We have actually more connections in the physical therapy. In actually, we we have about equal amount of connections because we started. We actually started in the physical therapy industry first with our product. Oh, we okay, were, okay. I did not know. We were actually working with the physical therapist to design, and this is where we were still doing smart clothing. Um, but we actually worked with the physical therapist to design the solution, the service, and the product really uh, for the physical therapist because we saw the same problem in the physical therapy clinic too. Um, so our our most of our initial beginning network in the initial stages of the startup was with physical therapists, practitioners, um, insurance company uh, officials, even some personal trainers who are working with physical therapists inside the clinic, you know? So the network was there, um, but we pivoted away from that almost like a, a while ago, almost a year ago, um, eight, 10 months ago um, to the sort of like personal training and um, the personal training and their client industry. Okay. Okay. So if we were to go back to the physical therapy industry, we would probably just re, re- reach out back to the uh, therapists and ask them, Hey, how, how's business? And we know business is bad because of all the cancellations and closures. Yeah. That may not be the best way to ask the question right now. But... <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. Great. Um, well, let's um, maybe switch gears uh, just a, a little bit. I'm curious, where are you in the development process? Do you, do you have a prototype? And if so, what's the, the quality? Is it a proof of concept prototype or do you have something that's actually a wearable size or wh- where are you with the, the development prototyping? Yeah. So originally, so if you, the webcam isn't on, but I'm actually sitting in our, one of our, our hardware development sort of like tables or that's our workstation. So we actually developed like several prototypes, both when we were in smart clothing, but also when we were pivoting over to, um, the, uh, the wearable form factor side of things. Um, uh-huh. And we were actually about to um, raise capital, use that capital, pay benchmark electronics, which is a local manufacturer and, and like distributor here, an engineering firm to actually develop a custom wearable. Because 
because a lot of the wearables we saw on the market, even the ones we were developing, weren't quite what we needed when it came to having that sort of full body, high resolution motion capture necessary uh-huh. to meet either the personal trainings, trainers or the physical therapist's qualifications, right? In a lot of the a lot of wearables you see in the market are actually just like very what I call like vanity metrics. They actually don't really help you integrate into changing your behavior. They're just kind of nice to haves. You can mm-hmm. sort of see that in like a drop off in like the wearable use case. There's no behavioral change that keeps people in it, right? So the idea is that for us is like we needed the higher resolution to basically build a business solution for these uh, interested parties, which in this case would be personal trainers um, originally before we went to the physical therapy market. Uh-huh. Um, but um, turns out actually, so we actually found um, a vendor recently that actually had what we needed when it came to, um, it was pretty close. It was like 80% of what we needed. It's not completely there, but it was enough to kind of get to that point. And it saved us at least like at least 150K. Like, like it's so expensive to develop like a custom hardware, not just like a prototype, but like a custom hardware that's like firmware oh, integration, absolutely. software integration, everything, especially the design for manufacturing and the, the build materials, everything, like everything past like engineering, which is like tooling and manufacturing beyond that was extraordinarily expensive. Prototyping is very cheap, like in, in comparison, it's extremely affordable. But like when you actually want to design to scale up, it is, gets astronomically expensive. Yeah, that's um, when engineers start getting involved in it. Obviously, yeah. they tend to not be cheap. And uh, yeah, the, the price can, uh, it can, things can get expensive really quickly. So you're, yeah. I, I really like that, uh, that the way you're doing this. So basically, your, your hardware that you're using is, is a sort of an, a development kit that a manufacturer offers that you can pretty much use to, to put out in the field and start offering your your service because you're not just selling the hardware product; you're really selling the service on the back end of that. Is correct. That right? Correct. Yeah. Because yeah. okay, like, if it was just a hardware product, we would have to get it right. However, if the hardware can, product can actually enable the real product, then it almost like yes, it's kind of bad and like it's not the perfect, but it, it, the main product is still there. You know. Yeah. Now that's great. I think that's a a really nice thing with the the strategy that you're that you're going that you have found a way to get something out in the field and start collecting the data and offering your software service without you having to do a custom PCB and custom enclosure yeah. and injection molds and, yeah. and all of that stuff, which obviously you'll do once you get past uh, your probably your initial phase and you, you're ready to start mass producing just to, to get margins up and things. I don't, I'm assuming you're not planning on using this uh, kit solution for, long term and that's just more of a, a oh not all yeah but we, we we figure like based on how we sort of like design is like the kit can definitely help us get early revenues in the very beginning yeah no absolutely i think this uh, i think it's a, a really good strategy and you're 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 lucky that there's that you were able to find something out there that pretty much has all the, the hardware requirements that you oh want. yeah no we were, we were we were ecstatic when we found it we we're like this is it i know <laughs> when i spoke with you Maybe a month or two ago, you were you were just on the verge, I think, of doing a crowd uh, crowdfunding campaign on yeah, 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 yeah. And then because you found this this development kit that sort of uh, eliminated a lot of your your upfront costs that you were going to need to get something out there. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a big. It was awesome. It was such oh, a good good change. Nothing's- it was awesome. That's even better than raising money. It's always better. oh yeah, hundred percent. Raise money, you, you got to give away something. But uh, in this case, you you've sort of got the benefit without having to give away anything. 
Exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, do you uh, do you have a patent yet on the product or? No, we are most of, so our our IP strategy is is um, centered around three things. Um, one, it's the it's a it's a patent around the attachment mechanism, so basically the form factor of the actual wearable device, as well as um, a patent around the we call the mesh IoT network. So basically the the hardware as well as the system architecture of how all the devices talk to each other. Um, because we actually found the wearable, the the vendor that gave us it, we actually don't have to worry about the patents, at least for the short term. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, but the, our third IP strategy is actually a, uh, it's the algorithms. It's actually the, the actual biomechanic algorithms that deliver a sort of like really high degree of uh, workout prescriptions as well as the biomechanics, everything like that. That's actually just a trade secret process that we okay. do protect internally um, on that end. So those are the sort of the three prong IP strategy on that. End. For the the you mentioned the the patent on the attachment mechanism. Is that do you just have a provisional patent? Do you have a, pa a full utility patent, or will that be? No, we, we were we patent? were about to file a provisional for what we were thinking, but after we found the the vendor stuff, we did actually we, we we didn't have to spend the money on the provisional stuff, so we're just kind of shelving that for now. Okay. Yeah. No. I think that's a. I think that's a. Yeah. I think that's a, a good idea. Um, and we we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but I kind of want to hit this on its on its own as far as uh, market validation. Um, if you could, what type of validation have you done? I, I, we've kind of talked about this somewhat, but th this is such a step that so many people just skip past their validation. Yeah, so is they think it's a great idea and their, their mom thinks it's a great idea. So yeah. it's validated and yeah, or so they like, talk to one person and they think it's a great <laughs> idea. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, have you guys been out there talking to fitness trainers or physical therapists that aren't your friends and family? <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. Um, so when it comes to market validation, there's like, uh, some of the it's yeah no I definitely know what you're saying there's definitely so many different steps and there's definitely a lot of times where you like skip over so specifically for um, primary market research and not just like but primary market research which which is just gathering research from like actual individuals interviews surveys that kind of stuff we did we did about three rounds of that meaning that there were about twenty to thirty people we interviewed for at least an at least an hour each um, for three rounds to kind of understand a little bit more about their their products their day-to-day on uh, their pain points and there's a very specific way of doing that because you can get caught in just kind of pitch mode and just start pitching your product features and then you don't actually get good information there's actually a really good good and short book it's called the mom test i'm not sure if you've heard of that book no I haven't. or uh, there's that book and there's uh, another book called talking to humans those two books are probably i've read a lot of like <laughs> business books <laughs> like a lot and those two, those two books are probably the most comprehensive of how to actually talk to customers, which which I personally think a lot of engineers don't do to do enough of. Even they some don't business do people. Any. Don't do what do you mean of. enough of? They don't do any. <laughs> customers <laughs> always, uh, especially for an uh, for an engineer. Uh, yeah, they're just a nuisance to an engineer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so 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 that was something that I was definitely on. Like, not there's still obviously there's always more. Prime market research is it's a never ending thing. That's another thing people have to realize is that you don't just do it for like two or three months and you're done. It's like it's a very it's a constant thing. Talk to customers almost every every chance you get. And just make and that's what the mom test really teaches you is that don't make it so formal. You can make it, you can you can have it in a casual manner that allows you to get the same information. You just have to be aware of it. So that's why the mom test, I highly recommend that. 
for any kind of customer interviews in, and then also the talking humans one. Yeah, no, um, those are great. I think those are areas where I'll, I'll definitely check those out for myself as well. But I, for I sure, for sure. But uh, yeah, so that's how to communicate with your customers, what messaging works with them, the, the you know, the vocabulary they use. Yes. And uh, that's, exactly. that's all really important and something I think is uh, way exactly. too often overlooked as not being important. Yeah, because they yeah, generally, at least for the engineers, engineers tend to like think, think, think things very systematically, which I totally get. I do the same thing. And they think things in a very like formal way. They know the X, Y, Z. But like the best customer interviews are the ones that the customer doesn't know you're interviewing, you know, because those are the times where you can actually get real stuff of their day to day. Right. So that's what we sort of did that first, first round and try to understand like what they were doing. Um, the sort of second bit, I actually spent a good amount of time just sitting in a gym and just observing people and just recording their behaviors and counting certain movements or certain things they did in the gym and why they did that. And maybe just randomly talk to people there. Right. Um, I think it was at lifetime fitness when I was doing that. That's great. So I was that's, just like, yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that that's really good that you're, you're, I like that you're at the gym monitoring people, talking to them. <laughs> that's yeah. Uh, yeah. No, you got the right, <laughs> you've got the right way of going about it. It's so many, uh, especially engineers will hide away in the product development phase and and never want to talk to customers. So I think that's really good. And I like just sort of doing it in a non-formal way. I've heard other people and I've recommended it. I think it's a good idea is you're standing in line for Starbucks. Well, you're probably not doing that now, but normally you'd be <laughs> standing in line occasionally in a Starbucks. And if you have a product that is a consumer product for everyone, just start a conversation with the person standing next to you and just Exactly. Talk about your product and get their feedback or exactly, uh, exactly. even better is go where your customers hang out like you were at the gym and, and just talk to people. I mean, you can learn, you can learn so much and get so much insight by uh, yeah, talking. And, I, to and you can notice like, so for example, like when I was doing that, I was, I wasn't just like, you know, dressed in my professional work clothes. I was dressed in my gym gear, you know, I was having, I had my protein shake, I had a protein bar, I was munching, you know? And then, so it was like, it was very much, I, I fit like the crowd that I was supposed to talk to. So that's why it was almost like very easy to talk to, them, right? Um, yeah, no, that's, that's great. You need to, you, yeah, it's always helpful if you're part of the, the group that you're trying to market yeah. to because you, you understand them, you can relate to them, yeah, et, et exactly, cetera, exactly. et cetera. I mean, that's like with me and predictable designs, you know, I, I can relate because I'm an engineer, obviously, but also just because I have done, you know, most of this bringing my own product to market. So I, I know. All the, a lot of the struggles and the stress and the emotions <laughs> yeah. and the roller coaster and all that good stuff. So, yeah, yeah. And then, like, it's, it's, and then like, yeah, so we did that a lot, the actual physical interviews, but we also did a lot of like combing. Cause like, another thing people don't realize, here's, here's another tool. It's like, if you learn how to use Google search, like actually use, for example, Google's advanced operands has been extremely helpful in finding those sort of like water, digital watering holes on the internet and the forums where people talk about problems. When you have forums, when you have these right questions, you actually those those I would consider primary market research as well because you can see the problems people are facing and asking each other, and you can sort of observe that happening. When you use when you use Google to do that, you can start finding out those type of information. So we did a lot of that where we were looking at different Reddit posts, different forums on fitness sites. I mean, even same thing when we were at the, during the physical therapy site as well. Um, but a lot of that was like that was just customer research, right? And you but the, your question is about validation, so. So let me get let me get into that. So we did a lot of customer research, and how we actually validated it is actually we didn't. <laughs> this is a little this is a little wonky. I'm not sure we. I don't know if anyone does this, but 
basically we didn't we didn't put we didn't design any engineering whatsoever, and we did this thing called Woz. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the concept, but it's like it's called Wizard of Ozing. It's basically like it's basically designing like a like a like a looks like product, right? It looks feels like what you what your your final product that you envision would be. You basically hack together like a backend service using like like no code or PowerPoint or whatever, right? Uh -huh. So all so that what the customer sees from their perspective, it seems like like finished product, and you it's very scripted, extremely script, scripted. But on your end, you know there's that the the only thing that's actually like real is just the surface level, but it allows you to actually validate your value hypothesis of will someone pay money for what I think the value is. And then so that we call the wizard of odds, right? Because you're, it's like, it's like, it's like the wizard behind the curtain. And so you're basically offering a, you're, you're, you're selling a software as a service, but you're doing it manually initially. Yeah, basically. And it, yeah. people think it's software as a service. Actually, arguably actually nowadays, there's a lot of no code tools out there, which is phenomenal for that kind of stuff because uh -huh. you don't, you don't even know how to need to learn how to code to do a lot. Oh, of wow. That's, that's really, I, I really like that. that. That's really, I think absolutely that's amazing. a great idea. Yeah. For people, yeah, if, you, if you haven't checked it out already, there's a, there's a site called MakerPad. Uh -huh. It's basically this repository of like forums. It's a, of people who are just completely into no code, no code, low code. It's a huge movement on like, I, I, and I found this out through, through Twitter too, which is why I love Twitter so much. Because you, you find all these, these tools and services that you can just do a lot of things in a far shorter amount of time and without needing the technical expertise to do it. So it basically allows us to um, validate a lot of different hypotheses that we have and make it so that it is a final product, but we know it's not, but it saves us so much development time. And that's a like critical in hardware, right? Because once you, once you invest money into a physical product, into assets, you can't get that back. Yes. So for us, it's like we, we can invest to a really good 3D printed thing, paint it a certain way so it looks real. Maybe you put like a weight inside of it so it feels real. And then give it to a person, attach it to them, have them move out, and we just fake, basically fake the the analysis. But we know the analysis is right because we're we're the, the subject matter experts on it. Mm -hmm. But we, we fake fake the pipeline to analysis, the value delivery vehicle, right? And just deliver the value, and then the question, and then basically ask them, will you pay for that value, right? How you deliver the value is is not necessarily important, at least for now, because you're not trying to scale it. But just the delivery of the value is your goal. So there are multiple ways you can deliver that same value. Um, you just have to be really, really creative about it, right? So, so it's like the Wizard of Oz. Um, so we call it the Oz demo. That that is really um, great. I, I think that's a uh, um, congratulations on uh, doing that. I think that's a really wise decision. I, I I'm not <laughs> sure I've heard that explained exactly like that before. So uh, thanks. Because thanks. it was just like it just we just found it too expensive to try to spend like hundreds of dollars on prototype when we can spend under hundred bucks, if not if if that on like just. Just going out and just say, "Hey, will you pay money for this?" And we've actually had people like, "Where, where can I pay money for this?" And we're like, "Oh, we basically tell them like, oh, we're having some server issues. Uh, please sign up for our email, and then we'll let you know when our product is up to uh, whatever, right?" But it basically allows us to like say like, "Hey, people are will actually pay money for it because we deliver the value." And they're like, "Holy crap, that's awesome!" And we know that it's just it's it's nothing there. So there's like the very very low cost way of actually validating the product. Now that's that's really that's really good. I. Had written a, a blog months ago about how to validate a, a new idea, and I, I think I may have to go back and uh, add one more to it I, for anyone <laughs> that has a software as a service on the back end, because I, I think that's that's really good. You, I love that you've you've done that with the the service aspect, and then the fact that you found this hardware device that you're going to be able to use out in the field instead of developing your own hardware. That's 
those, those two together, I think, are, are really powerful steps that's going to allow you to, to shortcut the process and, and, and actually succeed with it. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, Switching gears a little bit again. Um, so thanks for talking about uh, validation, and uh, I think the forums also is is a is a really good idea of way of just sort of communicating with people in various niches. So that that's really good. They, they can be kind of hard to find, but like you said, if you do really uh, specific Google searches, you should be able to find them. I'm curious as far as like an online audience is something I I speak up quite a bit about, and I'm curious, have you so you've got some connections with physical therapists, but have you, like, I don't know, do you have a, a just a small network of people that, that you've met? I'm assuming you, I, I don't think you've done started doing any, like, large-scale audience building, trying to collect email addresses and, uh, and things like that through, you know, like, people finding your website and such. Yeah, so, yeah, you know, so, like, we don't, yeah, no, you're correct. That is something that I have not... I know it's important and I definitely have not put enough time to do that because I think it's just kept popping up. Uh, but we personally have not built out an audience specific to Intrum. However, um, I am definitely in a lot of different groups that I've talked to that um, represent a lot of our, for example, like on Facebook, I think I'm in like five or 10 different groups that are that are consisting of primarily our, our target customers. Uh-huh. At least when it comes to the personal training space, I need to do the same thing for physical therapists, do the whole, basically start from scratch from like primary market research, all that kind of stuff. Go back to what I had in my notes in the past, but for the personal trainers, I am plugged into a lot of um, different groups um, from all the way from study groups for, for certifications, um, trade groups, um, general fitness groups, some some brand lifestyle groups that like kind of help each other support some, some subcultures here and there just to keep a, uh, an ear on like what's going on. Mm-hmm. But it's mostly been third party. So I've been like a third party recipient of all that kind of stuff. Um, but that has sort of served its purposes because I still can get the information that I'm needing without having to have um, our group. Um, but no, we did not, we have not developed an online audience quite yet. Quite yet. But that, I mean, that's a, I, I, I very much think, you know, building your own online audience is, is really important, but also just tapping into the audiences of other people, whether that be through a forum, you know, that you've joined and you're, you're posting in there and getting feedback. But still not quite the same as them you having your your own audience it's a little tricky if you're if you're still in the pivot phase and you know if you'd built this audience of personal trainers but then you decide you want to pivot to physical therapy then you know you could always use it later if you come back to it but it's still something i would recommend that you add to your to-do list is kind of slowly start branching out your your network even more than just your own personal network and uh, typically the best way to do that is through sharing content that people find useful and then collecting their email address and building a, a relationship through them or with them through that way which is what I've done for my business so mm-hmm. uh, yours is a little because you're you're going after a, a niche like physical therapists that have organizations and I suspect there's pretty good ways to, to reach out to them if versus if you have a consumer electronics product that's a, it's a much broader audience, then that becomes a lot harder to reach. So you kind of have to, you, you kind of have to do like content marketing to make people find you instead of you um, going out and, you know, it's called inbound marketing. So you basically just provide value and then people come to you instead of you throwing out advertisements and pushing your product 
and you sending the message out to them. Um, so anyway, that's just something to to consider that you may want to add on your on your list uh, is just start building your own online audience. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I noticed on your website that that there's it's pretty much a coming soon. There's no information on there. I'm I'm curious. Do you guys plan on? Are you you still in? I know from our conversation offline, you're not really super secretive. You understand the value of getting feedback more than keeping it secret. But I didn't on your website. There's no mention of your product anywhere or what? Yeah, it yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so for, at least for the time being, our, our initial customer acquisition process is just focused on just going to just just Phoenix right now because we already have the network necessary to kind of get that early. Early, early validation and potential of early revenues. So we're kind of confident in that particular realm. So we just kind of focus on the. Yeah, we just haven't had the time to develop out the website or even just. Yeah, no, I, I understand. It's I know what it's yeah. like when you're even with two founders. It's there's a, a, a yeah. billion things yeah. you have to do. Yeah, uh, and, and like yeah, none of us are both. Neither of us are have any software development experience actually, and we've we sort of we've already are in too deep in our own domains to kind of go back and relearn the software side. Um, so we sort of like haven't. We're actually, that's one of our bottlenecks right now is just the software and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I would at least, uh, you know, maybe not, you don't have to over-focus on building a huge audience, but even if you just had information about your product and you collected emails as a wait list, so you're not just, you know, providing content and knowledge, but you're actually telling them about your product. If you're interested, add your name to this waiting list. Is that, that's something you can throw up pretty quickly with just a one page on your website that kind of shows your product off and uh, collects emails if they're interested. So that, that could be a quick, easy path. That's a lot easier than starting up a blog and creating content and making it so Google loves you and all that. So, <laughs> Right, for sure, for sure. I'll definitely consider that. Um, sort of the last topic I wanted to, uh, uh, talk about is your distribution strategy is, do you, are you, are you planning on once you have the product for sale, or are you going to mainly just sell it through your own, through your own website or will yeah. you, are there yeah. distributors that sell products to physical therapists? Um, yeah, so I will, I will talk on the personal training side because okay. I don't, I haven't developed out the physical therapists, uh, well, I haven't developed out the physical therapist uh, penetration strategy nor the distribution strategy quite yet, but I have for the uh, personal trainers. So I'll talk about that. Okay. Um, uh-huh. So our initial market penetration strategy for the personal trainers, we were so we actually <laughs> like four weeks ago we actually started our personal training business. Actually, so our most direct competitor from a personal training perspective is actually not wearables. It's not soft. It's 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 the personal trainers themselves. Um, there are there are most direct competitors. So Max and I, we started a quote unquote personal training business. And Max, as the personal trainer, when he is certified as a as a personal trainer, I would be his first client. So that was phase one of the personal training. I started the initial market penetration strategy, which was start a personal training business with Max and I. I'm uh-huh. the first client. Max is the first trainer, right? Uh-huh. So phase two of that initial market penetration strategy was we're going to bring on more clients for Max. Or we're going to hire a trainer, onboard them with our product and service, and develop out a pseudo-controlled um, service pipeline using our product. Obviously, we still have to be there to monitor and collect the data, and it can't be used in like just without our supervision. But it's enough to get market validation and get early revenues on that end. Uh-huh. And then third, we would start targeting, build out the training team even more, build out to the, a full capacity, 
the trainers can then out train the other trainers and we'll, we'll start being going to little small boutique gyms of bringing our product to them as well. Um, that, and then that would be the market penetration. Then we had a, a three-step distribution strategy that we were going to implement where we, when once we get enough trainers are on our end and once, enough, once enough, we have enough clients, we're going to start going to direct the gyms. So it started doing an enterprise play. So uh -huh. the gym lifetime around here, lifetime mountain site fitness, LA fitness, um, EOS, Equinox, whatever it is, and say, hey, listen, we know you have a team of trainers of 15, 20 people. Here's a discounted bulk rate price of 15 units. These will increase your product, your productivity of your trainers, um, increase client retention, and all that kind of all the good stuff, right? And that would be direct to gyms for their the, the step one of our three-step distribution strategy. The second part is uh, retail. So we would actually um, go on to uh, different retail channels, specifically um, digital channels such as bodybuilding.com, GNC, um, other websites that sell fitness-related products. And so uh -huh. working on a partnership with them, so sort of, sort of affiliate right there. And then finally, the third step of that distribution strategy would be um, targeting insurance companies. So we would actually enter into shared cost savings program where because we actually know much more information about um, clients' health, we, were, we can basically offer a better risk table for the company. So for every dollar they save, we record we real percentage of that dollar saved from the insurance. Um, yeah, and that, that was our initial our part micro-penetration strategy and then our three-step distribution strategy. Okay, that's interesting. You've a uh, nice job. You've uh, I can I can tell you you've given that a lot of thought. So that's a that's a, more than a, a lot of times that I'll see. So I think that's a, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> uh, it's you know it, obviously you've decided to to pivot now. So yeah, yeah, it's gonna be wild. You're gonna have oh, to, to change <laughs> yeah, that at least for now. But you can uh, but you can you can always come back to it. I, I definitely like. Uh, you mentioning, I think it was bodybuilder.com and going through some of like websites that sell products to people, I guess, trainers and such. And that's something I had recommended to someone in the academy just recently. They were asking about if they should sell their product through Amazon or big retailers or just their website, but they didn't have any traffic to their website. Amazon's a little bit scary to deal with. So I, I recommended that they look for smaller niche websites, um, which is what I did for my product. And it, they're just much easier to deal with than, than Amazon or, or, oh my gosh, especially once you get to where it's brick and mortar, trying to sell to Walmart or Target. Uh, it's like, I mean, you, you have to stand on one leg and you know, do all, you've got to do all kinds of things to, 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 to please them. They're very critical about all the requirements. Yeah. It's just, yeah I totally get what you're saying. Like, yeah. I'm like, like on the note of like, yeah, we weren't, we weren't going to do the distribution strategy, which is like the retail and the gym stuff until we knew that we had a product that fit our niche market. You know, that's why, that's why there was an initial market penetration strategy that only focused on like just boots on the ground, door to door uh -huh. and early revenues. Basically, basically it's, it's, it's doing something that's not scalable. Right. The idea is that in the beginning, you, you want to do something that's sca not scalable to get validation and then switch over to something that's scalable, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So that, that was the idea of the, the initial market penetration strategy is like, yes, it's not scalable. And yes, it's going to require a lot of us to just go door to door. But the more we get, the more the higher chance we actually got product market fit, the higher chance we get some early revenues that we can actually go to these large retailers and other e basic e-commerce distribution channels and say, hey, we got something, you know, like we can actually make you money versus just skipping over that initial part. And you just like, it's a shot in the dark sometimes where you're like, 
you're like, you, you have a horror product that you put money into. You're like, okay, I got this. What do I sell us? Oh, online. Well, not necessarily, you know, because you may, you may have, you may have a product that no one wants. <laughs> so, so that, that's a huge risk on that end too. So there's so many stuff you can do before and to de-risk that, that I think people will skip over. Oh, abs- yeah, absolutely. I think there's, uh, there's a lot of steps like that that get skipped over. So, um, well, Josh, I, I, I'm really impressed with what you're, you're doing and the, the way that you're doing it. I think you're, you're, you're doing a lot of things right. I think you've got a, it sounds like a good team. You've got a, a, a good mixture of business and engineering skills. Uh, you're, you're finding really good ways to, to validate and to keep your costs down low. So I, I just commend you on, I think that you're, you're, you're off to a really good start. And I, I think you're going to succeed if you, if you keep going at it the, the way that you guys are going at it now. So <laughs> thanks, John. Um, Appreciate it. Uh, I just want to thank you for coming on the show. I think this has been really good. I think we, we've talked about a wide variety of topics that people will find useful. And I uh, really appreciate you coming on. Uh, before we go, can you tell people where they can find more, learn more or connect with you um, online and learn more about your product and your, your startup? You mentioned you were, uh, um, that you were used uh, Twitter frequently. So I assume they can, they can find you on there and, if you want to give the addresses and things now, we can do that. And then I'll make sure I include them in the show notes as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you can, so yeah, feel free to kind of, I mean, I think I'm on the, the hardware Academy as well. So you can see search my, my profile there. I think I've put all my contact information on there. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I think your, your, I think your username is your, your, I believe it's your, your name, your full name. So people can. Yeah. Find yeah, yeah. So it should yeah. be on there. Um, if you want to learn about my background specifically, you can just LinkedIn. If you search in uh, Joshua, ch dot su so and the su is spelled hsu that should that should be the first person that pops up okay um so it's more than welcome search there you can reach out to me there um i'm, I'm yeah i i the only place where i consistently post and interact with is twitter okay i find more i find more value just posting on there um but i i forgot my handle actually <laughs> well that's fine we'll we'll, we'll include it in the, the okay, show cool, awesome. so i don't um but yeah so yeah you know, feel free to reach out i'm more than happy to talk um my email is also joshua at introme.com. So that's also the place to reach him. I usually check all these all the time. So you'll find me one way or the other. Okay. Okay. Well, great. Well, thank you for so much for doing this. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, talking with you and I uh, think this was a, a really good conversation. So thanks again. Yeah, of course. Thanks okay. See you, Josh. That's it for today. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Predictable Designs podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then definitely check out the hardwareacademy.com where you can get support from myself and other experts to help you successfully get your product developed and on the market. We have experts in electronics design, enclosure design, prototyping, certifications, manufacturing, marketing, startups, and sales. You even get private one-on-one consulting directly with me. The Hardware Academy also includes a highly active and incredibly helpful community of other hardware entrepreneurs with a wide range of experience and skills. No longer do you have to go at it all alone. Now you have a community of experts on your team. You'll also get regular in-depth training courses, workshops, product teardowns, and resources to help you succeed with your product. Finally, you get access to my list of recommended developers, suppliers, and manufacturers. Check out the Hardware Academy today at thehardwareacademy.com.